0: therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices my flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to sheol or let your holy ones see corruption you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forever this is the word of the lord thanks be to god you may have a seat
1: Good morning, KCPC. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Welcome to the Joy of the Church series. Uh, we're now starting a new series for one month, and we will discover four things that God wants us to be rejoicing in. And these four things are resurrection today, and then salvation next week at DC. Then knowing God and kingdom of God. And so, with this in mind, I hope you're ready to rejoice. Amen? Let's pray. Father, the winter was long. COVID was long. The introspection that we engaged in was long. And we noticed who we are. We notice what our families are like. Amidst the shutdown, Father, we have discovered more of who we are like. And Father, a lot of us, we have talked. Uh, we, we say that we are sick and tired of ourselves. Father, I ask that you would grant us joy that is external to us. Father, if we were forced to churn out joy, the emotion of joy from our inner being, Father, we would be destroyed. For we know that there is no good in us apart from you. So, Father, I pray that this congregation would learn how to seek external joy. And, Father, as we discover what the resurrection does to our assurance of joy, let our congregation celebrate a strange joy That doesn't come from the inside, but comes from the love of our Father God. Father, we pray that you would talk to one person today. Father, save one person in the name of Jesus today. May one person be sanctified in the name of Jesus today. And Father, if there are mature Christians here Would you help them engage in spiritual warfare and pray for those around them that one more person would come to know who Jesus is today, for that mission continues no matter what season we are in, Father. And may this be pleasing unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, My son Ethan, he's two years old. Uh, Every morning he wakes up, and this is his ritual. He wakes up and he looks in the cabinets uh, for a toy. Uh, he looks about a good 10 minutes and he looks for something that can keep him occupied throughout the whole day. And he's really serious because that toy will last him the whole day. And so he seriously engages in looking from the kitchen utensils all the way to his sister's uh, dolls. And as he does so, he holds on and finds one and he never lets go. And, uh, you know, we're, what we're noticing as a family is this. Because his hands are so occupied or preoccupied with something that it's hard for daily life to continue because, uh, for example, if it's lunchtime, we can't give him a spoon because in his hand, there's a toy. Now, the worst day is where he has two toys in his hands and he won't let go of anything and he cries if you make him let go of something. And a principle comes to mind. I mean, the most ironic thing about this was on Christmas, we bought him a new Christmas uh, children's Lego set and we were going to give it to him, but he didn't have the hands to grab onto the newer and better gift. What we want to struggle with today, this morning, is this. How many of us are not receiving God's better joys, God's better gifts, because we are so desperately clinging onto the smaller, lesser joys of this world? Two hands clenched tight, around things that we desire so much that God has no room to give us higher and greater joy. These toys that we hold on to, uh, the lesser joys that we refer to, they are not always bad. Uh, Tim Keller talks about the danger of disordered love, and he puts it this way. Uh, for example, is good and biblical and holy for men to love their wives, amen, right? It's good and holy and biblical to do so, but it becomes idolatry when you love your wife more than God. And so it's a good thing to itself, but when it's disordered and misprioritized, it becomes idolatry. And the same thing with all the joys that fall under place under that. So without God as our chief joy and our chief possession, everything that comes under that that we practically make number one, although theologically we would never say so, practically Netflix is often more important than God. Practically YouTube or our phones or our our hobbies are more important than God. And that becomes an idol when it is higher than God. Now all of us pursue joy and happiness. I mean, we can't talk about a life where we aren't pursuing joy or happiness because let's face it, that's the only thing we live for. But just because we found something to be joyful Listen to this. Just because we found something to be joyful doesn't mean that the object or the thing that we find is worth the joy that we have in it. You get that? Just because we find joy somewhere doesn't mean that that object deserves that much of our joy or our adoration or our praise. Only God is worthy. Amen? Can you inscribe this in your hearts? Only God is worthy of our praise. Disordered joy makes good things into idols. And disordered joy is the tragedy of our lives because we don't rejoice as we should in the better things and we rejoice too much in things that don't deserve all that. What's so beautiful about Psalm 16, one of my favorite psalms, is that it shows what joy is looking for joy in our practical lives look like. Psalm 16 is a beautiful psalm that tells us how to look for joy and what we should find it in. And this is why it's called a mictum. A miktum, we don't know what exactly that word is, but it comes right before Psalm 16 in the subtitle. And oftentimes, scholars say that it stands for golden, golden. And there's a lot of interpretations. We don't know which one is right. But the way that some people take it is this is a gold-certified psalm. It's a gold-certified psalm that tells you, hey, if you're looking for joy, this is it. This is the standard, this is the textbook example of what joy looks like. Amen? So what we're looking for, if you are looking for joy, are you, by the way? If you are looking for joy and pleasure, Psalm 16 is where you should go as a Christian. So let's dive into this. Now, each of the verses here points to a greater joy that God the Father, our Father, wants us, His children to have, even if it means letting go of our hands and letting go of the lesser joy so that we can get a greater, more sustainable, more deeper, and more rich joy from God. And so every verse here, I'm going to go through it really quickly like a machine gun, but here it is. There's eight greater joys that we need to hold on to and let go of lesser joys. And later on, you don't have to remember all of them because we're going to tie it together at the end to connect it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So eight joys, every single time we talk about one joy, I hope that you let go of a lesser joy that took its place, that substituted for it, and grab onto the greater joy that God promises here in the verse. Amen? It's a great time of introspection. The doctor is holding uh, the scalpel and he's ready to operate on your hearts. And if you let go of a and dislodge a lesser joy and fill it with a greater joy, great will be your joy as you leave this room. That transforms us. So let's we'll start. Verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David seems to be in a threatening situation again, <laughs> again, right? And yet by the end of this psalm, he is singing his heart out professing in the deepest joy that he has. And so, straight from the beginning, in this first verse, we see that David challenges us in our understanding of joy. How? It doesn't require the best circumstances. Joy doesn't require a circumstance where you're not crying out, help me, God, preserve my life. Joy can come in the midst of your greatest struggles. It can. And a lot of you might have experienced that in the midst of COVID, where you were alone in your room and you didn't have anything to do, and yet you cried out to the Lord and He answered you. There is joy there. Another point. Taking refuge in God during our difficulties preserves our joy. First principle. Running to God preserves your joy. And here is the lesser joy that we need to let go of. How many shallow things do we take refuge in apart from God? How many shallow things do we look to and run away to, to escape to, when we have difficulties? I mean, although we might not have the degree of persecution that David experienced, where you fear for your life, here's the thing. Daily common stress, the stress of work, the stress of conflict, and the stress of guilt in life, those things cause you to seek refuge. Do you know that? Like all of us have a defense mechanism against things that trigger our anxiety. And so we run somewhere. And where is that usually today? It's in your hand, usually. Your cell phone. And so we run to Netflix to, to shut off that sense of existential guilt. We run to YouTube to distract us with you know, videos of puppies and kittens, whatever. And those shallow joys are taking the place of what? A person who finds their conflict or their stress resolved in the person of God. And so every time our life, there, there's, there's a time limit. There's an expiration date to our lives. And everything we do has an opportunity cost. When we don't run to God for refuge, we're finding a lesser joy. And God says, let go. Come to me when there is fear or anxiety in your life. Amen. That's how you get joy. And no, no wonder, like so many of us, have shallow joy because it comes, from, it comes from social media. But the deeper joys are found like a treasure in God. So KCPC, choose the greater joy, amen? Choose the greater joy. Take refuge from the storms of life by going to God and not your other smaller, lesser joys, amen? Okay, that was part number one. Number two. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. And David's, you know, psalm is just blowing our minds up from the start. Why? Because he's saying an awesome confession. He says, I have no good apart from you. (laughs) That's crazy. He's saying that God alone exclusively is his joy and delight. I have no good apart from you. All his joy, it only comes from God. That's a radical statement. And he didn't, it wasn't like he was a person who didn't have access to resources. He was a king. Oh, I get some delight from food, wine, entertainment, my servants, even war, politics. He Could have said that. He says, no good comes to me apart from you. And the same thing for us today. We have so many things that we have our joy from. Our lesser joys depend on many things. And so the modern person's joy is this. They think of, you know, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And they look at the pyramid and they say, okay, first of all, for joy, I need food, clothing, and shelter. Then I need a good job. Then I need to have romance and intimacy with someone who appreciates me. And then I need, you know, passive income maybe one day and then toys and gadgets, and after I have all of that, and then, after the pyramid is built, then God sprinkles something on top. And he gives me an accessory like joy. And that's why we're always shaken. No food. No comfort in movies or friends. Conflict with your parents. We're shaken because our joy comes from so many things. There was a missionary who died in North Korea. He was kept in a small cage, one meter, a cube. Cube, one meter, no light, no sun goes in there. He ended up staying like this for a week, like this laying on the ground, you know, uh, excrement, you know, whatever, peeing into his own cage. And he confessed. Streams of living water came out from him. Joy. Joy. Because God, the only thing he could take into that, he went in there naked, by the way, the only thing he could take in there was God. That's indestructible joy. And I wonder if you have that. Or how many things do your lesser joys depend upon? Because, of course, it's good and wise to discover the worldly joy, but worldly joy fades away like the dew in the morning. Circumstantial joy disappears. But the resurrection of God proves what? That God is faithful and unchanging. Therefore, he can be your unchanging joy. Amen? Can you repeat after me? Apart from you, I have no good. I wish that our lives forever, it's going to take a long time. I wish forever that our lives could calibrate unto what we just confessed. Apart from you, God, I have no good. Joy is exclusive like that. Verses three to four. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Interesting. We'll talk about this. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now David is seeming to contradict himself, and it's right after the verse where he says, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Then he says what? So why is he saying that all his delight, all his delight is in the saints of the land? Not God, but the saints of the land. Because, look, when you delight in God, you start delighting in the things that he delights in. You get that? So once you delight in God, what he enjoys, you start enjoying as well. And so you're in for a surprise. You're in for a surprise, and I hope this takes you away. God delights in you. Like, God doesn't love you like you say, I love you to an you know, a, a awkward brother you meet at church. That's not the kind of I love you he says. He says, I like you. I enjoy you. I want to spend time with you. You are actually intimately in my heart. If heaven had a refrigerator, your picture would be a sticker magnet on top of it. He delights in you. Therefore, what? Any pastor or leader or Christian who knows the heart of God for people can say this. I delight in all of you. You are my delight. Like when a single one of you grows towards Christ-likeness, that's my delight. That makes my week. As a pastor, you often have about 10 events, for example, throughout the week. Nine of them are painful. And one event is a story where someone says, I believe in Jesus more today. And that gives us delight. Uh, So please, if you have a good thing happening to you that comes from God, let me know. I would love to celebrate with you. But it's saying this, you know, joy is communal. Joy is communal. The greater joy that we want is communal. The lesser joy is individualistic joy, joy that you have just for yourself, that you contain just for yourself. But communal joy is greater because joy finds expression in a community. Now, verse 4 is, sent, is made to be an opposite of this. Joy here, he says, The sorrows of those who run after another god, they shall multiply. Right? So what you see here is that joy is not found in a community chasing after other gods because this multiplies your sorrows. So what we see happening is, if you worship God, in a God-fearing community, your joy multiplies, and in a non-God-fearing community, your sorrows multiply. Because what? People multiply what's inside you, right? That's why Tim Keller focuses so much on city ministry because cities are like amplifiers. It creates a culture that is often good or bad and it sends it to the rest of the world. And so it is with all communities. Why do we love each other? Why do we celebrate with each other? Because it's an amplifier. And I want to ask you this. As much as you enjoy God, do you love the person sitting next to you? And the tragedy is we're so big of a church that we sometimes don't know who's sitting next to us. But here it is. The greater joy is shared in a community. Amen? Another pitch. I am shamelessly doing this every week. Join us soon. Join a small group. Like, don't keep your joy for yourself. No wonder it dies out so quickly. Right? If you have ten coals burning together, they stay on fire for a long time. By yourself. You use your resources and it's done. Joy is expressed communally. That is the greater joy. Verses 5 through 6. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Portion, cup, lot, lines. These are all inheritance language. Inheritance language. And inheritance is something valuable that you receive given to us by lineage, by blood connection. So let's give an example of inheritance. In Numbers 18, verse 20, we see that 11 tribes, 11 tribes out of the 12, they get land as their inheritance. They have, you know, strips of land that belong to them. But to Aaron and the Levites, God says, you know what? You're not getting any land. He says to them, I'm your inheritance. Like, you don't get the land, you get me, and you don't need anything else. And so listen to this. Here's a question, especially when we think about the rising prices of housing here in Virginia, who got the better deal? The 11 tribes or the homeless Levites? That kind of wasn't a rhetorical question. I wish someone answered that. Who got the better deal? Amen. (laughs) The Levites got the better deal. Who should be saying this is not fair? I mean, in our case, because our joy doesn't depend on God, but the things that he gives. We, when we don't get the things that he gives, the paycheck, the relationships, when we don't have that, we, we say, it's not fair. And God is saying, you have me. Like You got me. I created all this. This belongs to me. If you knew who God is, It should be the 11 tribes looking to the land that they got, and they're like, what the heck is this? Levites, you have God. Like, I got land, I got property, I got the family, I got the money, I got the grades, I got the job, but this is no fair. You have God. Lesser joys, let go of it. Greater joys, get it. What is it? God. And this sounds so theoretical for so many of you. So theoretical. Like, how do you enjoy God? What flavor is he? What color is he? Like, what? Scripture tells you, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? Taste and see that the Lord is good. He will satisfy you in your deepest hurts and brokenness. Once again, delight in God, delight in God alone. Delight in the greater joy by desiring God over all the things that he gives. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. David says this, the Lord gives him counsel day and night. He's PC, do you know that your counselor is God, the Holy Spirit? Amen? Wow, it's really quiet today. It's so quiet today. Uh, like, this is Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> like, do you know that God is your counselor? Amen. I was in the West Coast Um, as a pastor for two years, two two years and a half, and over here as a pastor for about almost a year now, and, uh, you know, years of ministry before that. Here's the thing. So many youth kids are contemplating suicide. Like, you set up an anonymous board, and they get to write down their thoughts. We had uh, 250 kids at a youth retreat. 50 of them said they were talking about suicide. So much mental disease and illness going on, and you know what? We need so many counselors in our church one meeting with a counselor is about $200 if you find a good person. A legal counsel can go to up to $500 per hour. Here it is. Spiritual counsel that saves you and lifts you up from the grave is priceless. And yet, you get that for free. You don't pay $200 or $500 for this counsel that David is saying God gives him every single day, Christ paid the price for you to come to him, that you can get counsel and wisdom freely, and out of that you get joy. Like, let the Holy Spirit work in your hearts, and you will know how to prioritize greater joys and lesser joys, and in the order of your inner self, there is great joy. Those who know how to celebrate the good joys and celebrate less the lesser joys, who have it all together, know how to glorify God. You have a counselor, you talk to him? A lot of us sign up for you know, mental health counseling. Do you sign up for God's counseling with you? David says here, in the night, my heart instructs me, because the Holy Spirit is inside. In the night, God can talk to you and change hurts and deep-found convictions that are anti-gospel. God can change that as you sleep, amen? God can work on you, and He does work on you because He loves you so much. He will guard you when you sleep, and He works on your heart. That Holy Spirit lives inside you. So, Casey, choose the greater joy by seeking counsel from God and not men. Amen? Pastors are good, okay? Um, I can try to help you out. Counselors are good. Friends are good. Family is good. But God is best. How easy do I have to make this sound? God is best. And if you go to him, he will talk to you. Verses 8 through 9. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Now what does it mean to set God before you, always before you? on your right hand what that means is this isn't just talking about physical location he's saying god is first place in my life in other words god's in my right hand that means my dominant hand and my instinctive reaction is god right like let's say you are diagnosed with cancer how many times do we go to god as our first resort and pray yes Let's call the doctor, let's schedule chemotherapy, let's get it diagnosed. But how many reach out to God instinctively as our dominant first reaction? God is first, amen? And David says this, joy comes from setting God first. Joy comes from prioritizing God first. And David says he is not shaken. He is, not, he, he is glad, his, whole, his heart is glad, his whole being rejoices, and even his flesh dwells secure. This is what, holistic joy. Where do you get holistic joy? When you say the Lord is first, when God is first. And let's give you something practical, that sounds too theoretical. What that means is when you wake up in the morning and you open your scripture and you said, Lord, dissect my heart, make me known your ways, And God shows you what you need to see. Ever notice when you do QT in the morning, like the words dance in front of you and they jump out at you? And when you get that, you start forming categories of how to process the day. And so when things jump at you, when conflict happens, when suddenly you're fighting with your spouse, or your children are, you know, doing something crazy, you have categories to put it in because the Lord has given you his word. But if you don't wake up to the word, and just wake up to your daily schedule. You're always anxious. I hope this is speaking to you because you've experienced this so often. When the word proceeds, your heart is not shaken. When your life proceeds, you're dragged into it. You get that? But when you hide behind God like a shield, you put him first, and you set him first, and he's your dominant reflex, then if he's in front of you, the world can't get to you or your heart. God guards your heart if he's per- first. Is choose a greater joy by setting God first in your lives. Amen? Put yourselves later, your agendas later, your schedule later. God is first. That's how you get joy. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Today's sermon is titled The Joy of Resurrection. All of you are asking, where is resurrection here? This is where it comes from. David is uh, writing this, and Peter later recites this in Acts verse uh, chapter 2. And Paul recites this in Acts chapter 13. And both of them argue the same point. Guess what? David died. So David wasn't talking about himself when he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Because Paul and Peter's point was, hey, we know where David's tomb is. It's accessible. We can go there and, you know, pay tribute to his bones. by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David was looking to an eternal joy in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He saw the Messiah not being forsaken by God, but not seeing corruption, but being raised up in power. And when David saw that, his joy was complete. Not because he would later one day die, but he saw Jesus rising up from the grave. And that's the point in Acts, like how did the Christian movement, the Jesus movement back in those days, start from Jerusalem. I mean, how? That's where they killed him. Because they couldn't find Jesus' grave. And they couldn't find his body. I mean, imagine you say, Jesus will save you and resurrect you from the dead. And someone says, hey, by the way, Jesus' body is here, by the way. And you're in, you're in Jerusalem. Why not go away to Spain and proclaim the gospel there if you want to hide this crucial factor that? Jesus resurrected. Basically what this is saying is that your joy is intact only when you know that Jesus was resurrected, that Easter was real, that it is the best historically documented fact in all, all of human history. I mean, ages of ages of secular scholarship have tried to debunk that Christianity wasn't real, but the church started there in Jerusalem where Jesus' body should have been. How many of our lesser joys can we carry to the grave? How many of our portfolios and stock options can we carry to the grave? But David says this The joy of the Lord is intact in me because I see that there is a resurrection. I see that there is a resurrection. Your joy must go beyond the grave. And so choose the joy that lasts forever. Remember last week's sermon? Choose a joy that lasts forever and not something that you will take to you in the grave and will rot and decay. Amen? Would you arise with your Lord? Would you arise with him or would you choose a lesser joy that doesn't make it beyond this grave? Peace, PC, choose the greater joy. And with all this said, seeing the resurrection power of God, verse 11, David says this, You make known to me, this is his conclusion, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is David's conclusion. God shows you the path of life. And later you could almost hear Jesus echoing, I am the way and the truth and the life. God gives us Jesus, and you know what? This is what it sounds like. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In other words, joy orbits around God's presence. Don't look for it anywhere else. And it says, joy is at the right hand of God. In other words, pleasure gravitates towards God. If you are a true pleasure seeker, if you are a true joy seeker, you will find yourself chasing God. Amen? Because He is the source. Where do you think goodness comes from? Moral good, when the secular world can't even explain what good and bad is. Where does joy come from? God. Joy is personal. Therefore, choose the greater joy of a personal God who is the source and fountainhead of all joy. If you were to summarize all the 11 verses, this is what it kind of sounds like. Repeat after me. If you choose God first, exclusively and consistently, He will give you First, exclusive, and consistent joy. Amen? All 11 verses, if you choose God first, exclusively, and consistently as your refuge in this life, if you trust him like that, he will give you first and exclusive and consistent joy. That's a promise. All this boils down into a promise. All of Psalm 16 is a promise. If you let go of your lesser joys and find your greater joy in God, this deep and lasting joy in Psalm 16 is yours. That's what it's promising. Now, here's the thing, though. The twist of this whole sermon. Does this help you let go of your lesser joys? Probably not. Maybe 10% of you might respond to this sermon today and go home and start changing your priorities i promise you 90 percent of you won't because of one thing what is this it won't help you this promise won't help you let go of your hard-earned joys and priorities why because it's a matter of trust do you trust that god will give this joy to you you really do you really like would you stake your life on it is that how much you trust it The most important uh, question a Christian can ask is this. Is God trustworthy? He can promise all he wants. Is he trustworthy? And that's where a lot of you are having this existential crisis. Like, can you trust God? Because the world hasn't been so nice to you. So can you trust God? And this is where the resurrection of Jesus comes in. What does Jesus do to a promise of God? God. It proves that God, who gives you Psalm 16's promises, the same God, the resurrection proves that God keeps his promises. You get this? The resurrection is evidence of Psalm 16. It's not the foundation of it. It's evidence that God keeps his promises. How does this work, right? Now, in Christ... The the promises of Psalm 16 become a reality once we see how Jesus and the resurrection proves all of this. So eternal joy, apart from the promises of God and apart from the resurrection of Jesus, would have been a fairy tale. It would have been a whisper in the night or the ramblings of a bad man, right? Apart from this, the resurrection of Jesus, the promises of God and the resurrection of Jesus, if they were divorced, means nothing. Do you know that God made 7487 promises to man in scripture? So many promises, and all those promises are guaranteed when we see the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because Romans 8:32, he who did not spare his own son, let him die on the cross, sent him to die on the cross, planned that before all of creation, now resurrects him as a fulfillment of what? A promise. He gave him up for us all. So how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things that are lesser than Christ? In other words, this is what the argument sounds like. If a, if a person approached you and says, hey, I'm going to give you a billion dollars. And the next day, he gives you a billion dollars. So that proves two things. Number one, he is a promise-keeping character. He is a person who keeps promises. And number two, he has the ability to keep his promises. Do you get that? And so he's rich. Like, he has it all. And so later when that person comes and says, hey, you know what? I'll give you an additional $1,000. You trust him? Yeah, you trust him. Because he's proved it. He gave you the most impossible thing. So $1,000 more is fra- it's just a fraction of that. This is what God is saying. I gave you my son. On Good Friday, he was nailed upon the cross, bleeding out for all humanity. And I resurrected from the grave. Nothing is beyond my control. Therefore, what? You can trust me to fulfill all other promises, among which 7,487 are just a sample of. You get that? All of the Bible is fulfilled when you see the one tangible piece of evidence that historians cannot deny, that Jesus died and he rose again from the grave for many witnesses to see. Why? If Jesus' ministry was just to die for us upon the cross, Jesus could have, God could have said, hey, you went to the grave, now come back up. And no one needed to see, but what is he doing? Why is God making a physical resurrection visible to everyone? Because he's saying, you can trust me. See, Jesus says, place your fingers in his hand. You can trust me that this God keeps his promises in the most serious and most sacrificial areas of his promises. Therefore, what? All other things I give unto you in him. Amen. Amen. All other things, all other promises are yours. Think about this. The resurrection of, of Jesus doesn't make sense apart from God's promises. Do you get that? The resurrection resurrection itself, by itself, without the context of God' promises, can't give you joy. You know why? I'll give you examples. For example, if Buddhism saw a resurrection, a resurrected guy, not enough context. He would wonder, maybe that that guy was a bug in his previous life, and he made it up the next level of reincarnation. So where's joy in that? A Hindu, if he saw a resurrection, he would say, you know what? Oh, he's a person with good karma. But that's basically, you know, you get what you see, you take what you can give. And if a man just gets what he deserves, which is all the Old Testament, where's the joy in that? So Hinduism doesn't have enough context to process a resurrected man and say, this is joy. Uh, Let's go on. It's George Romero, the film director. If he saw a resurrected person, he would say, he would say what? It's a zombie. Because that's the kind of movies he made. But where's the joy? Not enough categories, not enough promises or context to support and explain what a resurrected body means. What about the pessimist? The pessimist resurrection is a living hell. So if a pessimist were to be resurrected, there would be no joy in his worldview. Can't explain it. What if a Darwinist, an evolutionist, resurrection happened? He would say, oh, that's an accident of mutation. No context for resurrection. But here it is. We can't deny the resurrection. If you need more evidence, look at N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God. 800 solid pages that makes everyone say this happened. And look at that book. And once you conclude that the resurrection is the focal point of all history, then when a Christian sees a resurrection of one who claimed to be the Messiah, promised from five covenants from the Old Testament, all the way until now, what does a Christian see? The fulfilled promises of God flooding in through all of promised history, landing on him to give him joy. I see a resurrected Messiah that has a context. God talked about that thousands of years before, and there's so many things that talk about a resurrected Messiah. I cannot deny the context from which it came from. And then what? Oh my God. It's true. I can trust God. Then what else can I trust? God is good and just because he promises. God loves you and cares for you. He loves me and cares for me because he promised that. God will forgive me of my sins if I believe in Jesus. God will protect me in this life until the next. God will give me all good things in this life and the next. Death will not be the end of me because he keeps his promises. And he prepares a place for you in heaven. And that all of Psalm 16 all of the greater joys belong to you. Why? Because God is trustworthy as proven in Scripture and the resurrection. Amen. Can you trust God? Like, what else would you do if you saw a living, a dead person come back to life and he's just walking around the streets? You need a context to interpret all of that. Where do you get your context from? It's from Scripture. And it tells you what, over and over again, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. So you know what What your task is? Get your promises. Hear God tell you what he wants from you and what he's going to give you. That relationship needs to be made through Jesus. Amen? If any of you do not believe in Jesus, if any of you, JG and All Stars, if you don't believe in Jesus, God promises, if you believe in Jesus, all the things of Scripture I give to you freely. Uh, recently, a close friend of our family passed away. Uh, Praising, can you come up?" close friend of our family passed away. My parents uh, visited them a couple of days ago. She lived with her husband and her son in a beautiful home. And that home uh, faced the sunset. So every time the sun set, the sun would hit it. And on the day that visited, they visited, it was particularly beautiful. The sun was hitting the. the The house, the green was a deeper shade of green everywhere, like the trees, the grass. Uh, The weather, the, the, the air, they said, was tangibly joyful. But the sad thing that tinged all of that was the fact that their friend had died and that house was of no use to her anymore. What use is all the lesser joys, our relationships and our pleasures in the world, if we are not here to enjoy it? But here's the thing, she believed in Jesus. She believed in Jesus. Jesus resurrected today. I don't know if that's clear to you, Jesus resurrected today. What that means is, she will resurrect because it's promised. There's no one-to-one equation saying if Jesus rises, you rise. No. Scripture promises it. That's what holds the two together. So when you see Jesus, the other promise is connected to your resurrection. Your resurrection. You will be resurrected one day. Amen. Hallelujah. And that future is not a future that is dark or gloomy or, or evil. It is a future without sin and death and tears. we will all rise again one day. And if you are in Christ, the greatest if in the universe, if you believe in Jesus, you know, stand right now and repeat this after me and we'll close. If you believe in Jesus, you will all say on that day, singing towards God, you'll say this. Repeat after me. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will resurrect. You'll stand before God. All of His promises will have been fulfilled in your life, and they'll continue to be promised. And you know what? We're not looking at a grocery list of things to check off as promises. The promise maker is there, and He holds your future secure. I hope, I pray I struggle with you believe in Jesus today believe in the resurrected Son of God today an eternal life is yours the pain in this life only feeds into the joy of your future life and all the promises of Scripture belong to you I wish I plead with you please hold on to those joys those promises in Christ let's pray Heavenly Father thank you for resurrecting father thank you for resurrecting your beloved son so that all of humanity would know that there is greater joy in your presence and we can afford to let go of the lesser joys that keep us too occupied from reaching out to you and holding on to jesus so father show us your resurrected son in all of his glory and all of his humility all of his love for us so that we would be enticed into an everlasting relationship with your son jesus christ so that all promises would find fulfillment in jesus in our lives and may your people be uniquely joyful throughout their days we pray this in Jesus' name